Hi, my name is Katie, registered dietitian nutritionist obsessed with all things food, family, and wellness. There is seemingly ever-changing nutrition information, from fad diets to quick fixes. I'm here to sort all of that out with you. Each week, we will be diving into popular topics like fertility, weight loss, even food freedom. You can find it all here. I have made it my work's mission to educate and empower others towards food freedom, and I'm grateful to get to be doing that with you here each week. This is Simply Functional Nutrition with Katie. All right. Well, welcome, Kaylee. I'm so excited to have you today on today's podcast, talking all things stress, hormones, especially, especially specifically for us women and how, you know, all of the daily stressors of life, whether environmentally or the things we ingest or become exposed to affect how our hormones operate. And so I think you're just a wealth of knowledge. And so I'm excited for people to hear from you and kind of expound on this topic. But before we dive in, I would love to give you the mic to just kind of introduce yourself, maybe tell us a little bit about you and what you do in your practice. I think it's so interesting. So if you'll go ahead. For sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, My name is Kaylee McDevitt. I run a virtual private practice where me and a team of four specialize in all things women's health. So primarily we serve women of childbearing age. So we troubleshoot period issues, whether they're really symptomatic, irregular, or absent, fertility issues, PCOS, endometriosis, thyroid stuff, kind of anything that can occur in that timeframe of life. And this practice was born out of my like deep interest in women's health that came from some struggles I went through back when I was in school to become a dietitian. And I was dealing with really significant hormone issues back in school. This was like grad school internship timeframe. And I was desperately applying everything I was being taught to try to fix the situation. And I was finding that it wasn't working. And I felt very much like a fraud. Like, how am I supposed to be helping people with their nutrition if I can't help myself? And then I realized that I just had a complete lack of education in how the female body works in how stressors of day-to-day life impact that, that happened to be a super stressful period of life, as you remember, I'm sure. Um, And I just really dove into the research on how the female body works, how hormones work, how diet lifestyle, and even targeted supplements can implement or fix issues going on there. And, you know, it was personal necessity first. And then I realized a lot of other people were dealing with it too. So I pivoted away from what I thought would be a career in sports nutrition to women's health, because it felt like there was a need and not many people were talking about birth control and post-birth control syndrome and all of this stuff back when I was going through it. Yeah. I think you make a really good point in that. I think there is, especially as a, as a nutrition and a, and a dietitian, a a professional in the, in this field, there is such a lack of education around our hormones and how things influence it. And then kind of the cascade or the, the downhill effects of whether or not we're taking care of them and what that could look like. And I'm, I'm very much with you in that, you know, I, I deal once also with a lot, mostly with women of the reproductive age and this whole conversation around hormones and what's normal or what's not normal. And I think it's so important to iterate that just because it's common doesn't mean it's Mm -hmm. normal and kind of being the voice to get this information out there. I resonate so much with in that it's like, okay, if we as a dietitian, like, uh, like we're supposed to have this all figured out Mm -hmm. supposedly. And if we're trying to figure it out ourselves, even knowing our, our background and we can't, then obviously there's such a need for the masses, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I'm so excited to have you here to kind of unpack this because it is so important and should be talked about more because if we can address things from kind of a functional and perspective of managing what we can manage without medication. I think it can make a world of difference in so many women's lives. Oh, totally. Totally. Um, and I think for the, for our audience's sake, let's start at the top, maybe Mm -hmm. with some kind of basic questions so we can kind of build that foundation and speak the same language, but I'd love if you don't mind kind of start out and tell us, you know, as we're talking hormone health, what does that even mean? You know, what are Mm -hmm. hormones and what exactly, what, what's the role that they play in our bodies? For sure. So like fundamentally speaking, hormones are just chemical messengers of the body. So they get released by 
different glands and organs, they travel through the bloodstream and then they have an action on a target tissue. So it's basically how your body is giving instruction to other tissues and organs in the body. And when we're talking about women's health, we're primarily talking about our sex hormones. So that's estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and the effects that these have are, you know, whether or not we ovulate and have a regular cycle, whether or not our fertility is um, in peak shape or not, it controls things like our energy, our mood, um, to some degree, our personality, our metabolism, and even what fuel substrates we burn better, like carbs or fat, how we might perform in the gym or in an athletic setting, how well we sleep. Um, there's really probably not an aspect of life that's not impacted by our hormones. They really make us who we are. Yeah. Well, it covers it all. That's why it's so important <laughs> to talk about. So I'm so glad you, you made that clear. So they're messengers that are basically depending on what the hormone is and where it's targeted, mm -hmm. it's going to have an impact on, like you were saying, whether or not our cycle is optimal, are we burning energy efficiently, mm -hmm. um, and anywhere, anything in between. So in your practice and dealing with women, what are some, maybe some of the most common hormone imbalances or issues that you feel that women are coming presenting to you with? Yeah. So our ideal client tends to be like uh, pretty driven, maybe teetering on that type a personality type, like go getter females, lots of things going on, whether it's raising a family work, both all kinds of stuff. And usually they're seeing some hormone chaos as a result of the compounding stressors in their lives. So the most common symptoms we see are either really symptomatic or absent cycles. So whether it's pretty severe PMS and you hit the nail on the head earlier, when you said, just because it's common, doesn't mean that it's normal society wise. We kind of all grew up thinking like periods were something to dread. This was a really inconvenient part of the month and everybody's miserable and that's not how it's supposed to be. So a lot of our clients come to us to figure out what's driving that at the root. How can we not be miserable one, two, or even three weeks out of the month? Um, some of our clients have totally absent cycles as a result of all the compounding stress in their life. So we're trying to figure out what are the various stressors that are getting in the way? Um, how can we attain normal ovulation? Because one of the main principles of what we teach is consistent, pretty asymptomatic cycles is very much a vital sign. Um, whether or not you're actively pursuing conception right now, the ability to do so is a huge indicator of health. So it's a big deal for everybody to be aware of it, talk about it and optimize that. Yeah, actually you said it really well. And I was reading a, a book recently where the doctor it's Dr. Aviva Rome. She's yeah. a wonderful resource. And she, she mentions the cycle, you know, you have your five vital signs mm -hmm. and the cycle is really that sixth vital sign, just like you were touching on. It's so important whether or not, like, regardless of whether or not you're in a place where you're trying to get pregnant, trying mm -hmm. to avoid, it's so much more than that. But, mm -hmm. you know, before going too far into the weeds of that, let's back up a little bit and let's maybe identify what do we mean by stress? You know, mm -hmm. cause for me, I think stress, it's like, like growing up, you think my dad's stressed at work or, <laughs> you know, this family member's sick, that's stressful on our family, but really it can look like so many different mm -hmm. things. So can you kind of talk about what exactly do we mean by stress? For sure. Um, so what you mentioned is absolutely stress, work, stress, life, stress, dealing with things like a sick friend or family member, um, living through a pandemic is inherently stressful, but we also have a lot of other things that probably aren't on everybody's radar. Um, that can be stress from nutrition, whether we're on purpose or accidentally under eating, that's a stress for the body. If we're doing too much exercise for our capacity to recover, that's a stress on the body. If we're not getting enough sleep or our circadian rhythm is just really dysregulated because of travel or um, staying up super late some nights of the week and not others, that's a stress on the body. Uh, blood sugar swings throughout the day is a major stress. And then any major source of inflammation or infection in the body can be a major stressor too. So there's a lot of internal and external factors. And then one of my favorite ones to talk about is our thoughts and beliefs about ourselves and about the world that we live in. If we are marinating ourselves in really negative thoughts all day long, you better believe that that adds to that overall stress bucket. And that's one of the ways we like to describe this with our clients is you can think of it as like a bucket with all these different inputs pouring in and we can feel fine up until the point that that bucket overflows. And once that overflows, then things start to break down. And normally the warning lights on the dash that we see are hormone symptoms as 
Yeah. And I want to go into some of these stressors, like the sleep and the circadian rhythm. Yeah. So like the, the, that is so, so important before we dive in though, to like specific stressors mm-hmm. and maybe some, maybe we can talk some alternative ways to manage those stressors. But before we talk about that, what are some ways that you see the stress manifesting as women are presenting to you and you're like, okay, we know that your, your body's under duress. Mm-hmm. Here are these symptoms that I'm seeing come up pretty frequently. Do you have some that are like re- repeating offenders here? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. One of the earliest ones for a lot of people, myself included is sleep disruptions. So when I'm starting to teeter on the edge of poorly managed stress, one of my tells is I'm going to be awake and alert at like 3am for no known reason. <laughs> Oftentimes I'll feel really hungry at that time too. So I'll know there's some kind of a blood sugar element to it. Um, so sleep disruptions is a big part and it can look like waking up in the middle of the night, but it can also look like a really restless mind that we have a hard time settling into sleep at first. You might be laying in bed for an hour or two and not able to calm a busy brain. Um, so that can be a pretty common tell, um, feeling irritable and not like yourself, like you've got a shorter fuse can be a big part of feeling like your nervous system is a little bit too taxed right now. Like you're not as resilient to the day-to-day stressors and you feel like your capacity to handle what used to not throw you for a loop is just totally depleted. Um, and then we can see two extremes when it comes to food and appetite, either there's a really big increase in appetite, especially for either salty or sweet foods, just feeling like we've got really intense cravings or other people respond to stress by a complete diminished appetite where they forget to eat. Their days are really busy. They're just not that drive to eat. Isn't there. Um, and we see a pretty mixed bag with those two. And then a couple other common ones that we see are really increased, um, PMS type symptoms. And I'm sure we'll get that might be, but feeling like, man, I don't remember these being this symptomatic either in terms of cramping or heaviness or mood swings and then digestive complaints too. And there's a big gut brain connection. And anytime we're running on stress hormones, our digestion usually takes, uh, takes a hit and gets placed on the back burner. So there might be an increase in like GI distress, bloating, discomfort, or even changes in um, bowel movements that we see when people's stress is really ramped up. Yeah. So basically there's not a one size fits all is what no. I know. <laughs> but, it's, but honestly, I feel like, I think it's a good thing because, you know, people might be listening and saying, you know, my sleep's fine, but I've been so irritable and just quick to snap at my kids or my mm-hmm. husband, or maybe that's not necessarily affected, but the whole insomnia and I'm awake, like a crazy person at 3am and I, and I'm just like, my mind's racing and racing. So I think honestly, in a sense, it's a little bit encouraging to see like, there's so many different warning signs or like you're saying tells of, okay, Mm -hmm. something's going on. I need to find this root cause of where this, this stress or this just offness is coming from and, and kind of really dig deep and figure out what, where I can manage my stress. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully we can see these signs and symptoms kind of wane and dissipate and you return to that good sleep and things like that. Right. Um, but let's, let's go back to, you know, things that are considered stress. I'd love to talk food stress and I would Mm -hmm. love to talk sleep stress because I think those two, um, are so interesting. And I I like the idea of talking about these because those are people can address their circadian rhythm without spending a lot of money. Mm -hmm. You know, anyone can do it and we can start today. So let's start. Um, first, maybe let's talk ways, ways we can support our hormones and reduce stress through healthy sleep habits and supporting a healthy circadian rhythm. Yeah. I love it too, because when we think about all the different types of stress, sometimes that's overwhelming and you feel like, how could I possibly resolve this situation? And not all of the stressors are things that you can walk away from. Like you probably can't just up and quit your job. You can't walk away from your family, but food and lifestyle things like sleep are within your control, which is empowering and makes a huge difference on that overall stress bucket and whether or not that's overflowing. So with sleep, um, we really, when we talk about circadian rhythm, that's the 24 hour body clock that all the cells of your body operate on and things like digestion, hormone production, and even detoxification are all on that 24 hour clock. So if our circadian rhythm is disrupted, those really fundamental tasks of the body get disrupted too. Um, and that's really where we see the connection between circadian rhythm changes and stressors. 
you even see it show up in blood sugar control. Like if we have one bad night of sleep, we have 24 hours of a more difficult time keeping blood sugar in check, which is profound off of just one bad night of sleep. So the way that we usually workshop sleep is we first want to establish a consistent sleep and wake time. Now we want to be going to bed roughly the same time each night and waking up roughly the same time each morning. That's going to be the best way for your body and your cells to really get all on the same page with what sleep and wake schedule we're uh, adhering to. Now it doesn't have to be to the minute. Um, and I know it's pretty common to like stay up later and sleep in later on the weekends and vice versa during the week. But if we can keep that to 30 to 60 minutes max of a difference between weekend and weeknight, we're in pretty good shape there. Um, when we're doing all kinds of different bedtimes and sleeping in at different times, it's really difficult for your body to settle into a clear rhythm with that. So clear sleep and wake times. Um, we want to work on light exposure too. So that's one of the strongest influences on circadian rhythm. So we try to get sun exposure first thing in the morning. Um, this is a challenging time of year for that. So if we don't have access to sun because it's winter or maybe we're up before the sun, you can get a full spectrum light box pretty inexpensively off Amazon. And that's something that you can turn on right when you first open your eyes, you can have it next to you as you cook breakfast or put your makeup on just getting some of that mimicked sunlight into the eyes is a really clear message to the body that, okay, it's morning. We can now start the clock. We mitigate light exposure from blue light sources in the evening too, because the opposite is true. We want to make sure all the light messages to the body are telling us that it's nighttime, we're getting ready for sleep and blue light that we get from technology. So phones, computers, laptops, TVs really gets uh, messy with whether or not we're producing melatonin or keeping on that clear circadian rhythm. So ideal situation is we're going no screens an hour or two before bed and we're reading or talking, listening to music, something like that. But I know that that's not always a practical advice and not something that I personally always adhere to as well. So we can block blue light. We can either use um, apps or filters on different pieces of technology, or we can have some really nerdy looking blue light blocking glasses we can wear at night, which is my personal choice <laughs> so that we don't get in the way of our ability to sleep. Oh yeah. Um, and mine are yeah. really goofy looking <laughs> and I, and I mean, it's, I'm thankful I've got great vision, so I don't wear glasses except yeah. for blue light. And yep. so my husband's like, Katie, you look ridiculous. Like what yep. are you doing? I'm like, you are next. You will be getting these glasses, Mr. 4am wake up calls. Yes. <laughs> so oh they're gosh. goofy, but they, they, I notice when I put them on my eyes, like relax, you know, mm -hmm. they're already, as soon as I put them on and cover that filter with my eyes, I feel like they're taking a big breath and they're not straining as much. So totally, it, it definitely, it definitely works. Yeah. And I feel like it impacts how quickly I can fall asleep the nights that I remember to wear them and the nights that I don't. And it makes sense because if we're letting all that blue light in, we're delaying melatonin production and we're not going to settle into sleep as well. So it's worth looking ridiculous in my opinion. If you want to watch your show before bed, we can at least block that light and not mess with sleep too much. Um, and then once we've set that routine, we've mitigated light exposure, it's creating an environment that's conducive to sleep. And so that's cold, dark, and quiet. Um, so that might mean an eye mask. It might mean earplugs. It might mean a white noise machine. Whatever you need to do to keep that environment cold, dark, and quiet will help promote deep sleep. Yeah. I love that you, that you said the cold, dark and quiet. So, um, I have a follow-up question on that, mm -hmm. but just to kind of, as a recap for those, those kind of bullet pointing in their heads. So things mm -hmm. that we can do to help and support that circadian rhythm for more quality sleep is to set the routine. So we're consistently sleeping and rising around the same times, plus or minus 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. We're exposing ourselves to the bright light, the full spectrum light in the morning. We're also reducing the blue light exposure in the evening. And then also creating that happy environment of cold, dark. What did you say? Cold, dark, and quiet. I yes. love it. I'm like, oh, I'm already, I'm already excited about my bedtime routine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Here's a question though, because I get this often, you know, you always have your night owls, right? Like mm -hmm. I was talking to a client earlier this morning and she was like, my typical, you know, I typically go to bed around 11, maybe midnight, sometimes 1am occasionally. And you know, she wakes up later in the morning. So she's mm -hmm. getting that larger window of sleep. I mean the ideal, you know, seven to eight hours, but it makes me wonder, you know, 
circadian rhythm is kind of working with the sun and the moon, right? Mm -hmm. Like does, even though she's getting that amount of time per se sleeping are the hours that you go to bed, does that have an effect on hormone regulation and quality sleep too? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, based on the studies that we have, it seems like the 10 AM or I mean, sorry, 10 PM to 6 AM timeframe is the most optimal because that's going to be the closest synced to the environment. So sun and moon schedules. And when we talk about some of those body processes that are either up or down regulated based on sleep or wake times, like hormone production, digestion, and detoxification, um, we get the most benefit of those processes. If we're asleep by 10 and the hours of 10 to 12 being like some of the most important hours of sleep. So we have clients that are self-proclaimed night owls too. And I would argue that that's not a normal state that's probably been in the works for a long time. And we've gradually adjusted to a shift shifted circadian rhythm. And we usually try to work that back slowly. It might be like 15 minutes earlier for a while. And then 15 minutes earlier than that, with a goal of trying to get to about a 10 PM bedtime, if we can can't because of job or life constraints, obviously we've got to do the best we can. And consistency is the second most important thing. So even if it's a little bit shifted off that 10 to six, as long as it's consistent day in and day out, we're still you know, doing a pretty good job with circadian rhythm. Yeah. I think the progress, the progress is more important necessarily than not more important, but it's more achievable than perfection. Right. So if totally. 10, 15 is your time and it was previously 12 AM, well, I'd take that as a huge win and let's mm -hmm. celebrate that. So I love that. I love that you focus too. I think that's so important focusing on incremental changes consistently over time. That's going to really serve you well and be something that ultimately is sustainable. Mm -hmm. And you start to adjust and adapt and feel good on that 10 PM sleep time, right? That becomes sure. the new normal. Yes. Okay. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about mm -hmm. stress. And I know you mentioned nutrition, right? Like mm -hmm. we're both dietitians. We yeah. of course love to talk about food. <laughs> How does what we eat and how that impacts our stress and our hormones? Like what's that whole cascade and how can we maybe eat in a way that's supportive of hormone health? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, at least in our practice, and I'm sure you probably see the same stuff because we work with similar target populations. Some of the most stressful things that are going on nutritionally is either intentional or unintentional under eating. Um, that's something we're screening for first and foremost. And so this means we could be um, working on a fat loss goal. So we're at an intentional calorie deficit or oftentimes, especially for busy females, sometimes it's totally accidental. We're just not aware. We haven't kept eyes on our nutrition and there's a lot of under eating going on because it just has fallen to the wayside. And when we're talking about optimizing hormones, what we're really talking about is making the body feel safe because whether or not we ovulate or whether or not we make hormones is all filtered through. Does the body feel safe enough to procreate? That's like the fundamental question that the brain is trying to answer at any given day. And if we're not on a very consistent basis, the body is like, Hey, you know what? There's not enough energy availability for her, let alone bringing another life into this world. And, you know, I talk about procreating often because it's part of this conversation, but I want to reiterate, even if that's not a goal of yours right now or ever, it's still fundamental to hormone health that your body feels safe enough to conceive. So the first thing we screen for is, are we eating enough on a consistent basis? And that's in terms of total quantity, but also in terms of each individual macronutrient. So carbs, proteins, and fats, and making sure each of those are adequately represented because we can see some hormone dysregulation on super low carb or super low fat eating. Um, and even people just not getting enough protein. So pure calorie amount is not enough. We also want to look at how is that balanced across carbs, proteins, and fats. Um, and can we keep blood sugar nice and steady throughout the day and provide all the necessary raw materials to even manufacture those hormones in the first place? Yeah. So let's say someone is under consuming, you know, you mentioned intentional and unintentional, mm -hmm. regardless of intention behind it. Are there some maybe common signs, you know, um, and I'm thinking of the woman listening to this right now going, well, mm -hmm. How do I even know if I'm yeah. under overeating specifically under eating, excuse me, how are, what are some signs that we might be able to look out for and know that we're potentially malnourishing ourselves? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, pretty uncontrolled stress. So a lot of the stress symptoms we talked about do tend to run with under eating, even if it's accidental. So the sleep dysregulation, the irritability, 
Um, we'll definitely see some hormone dysregulation as well. So that could mean like inconsistent cycles, absent cycles, or more symptomatic cycles. Um, and then as far as appetite goes, it seems to depend on the duration that this has been going on. If it's been a long-term thing, a lot of times appetite is very suppressed. So you're thinking like, if I'm under eating, why feeling hungrier to compensate for that, but your body gets accustomed to what you do. And if we've been under eating for a long time, a defense mechanism is to slow metabolic rate down, bring appetite down in the effort to protect you and preserve life. So sometimes it feels completely counterintuitive that we're actually under eating. And um, we have to go slow and steady with that too, and give your metabolism and your digestion time to catch up. Yeah. I'm a, I know people are listening and can't see, but I really am clapping over here. I think that is such a great point. I do so often tell clients, you know, if you're out of touch with your hunger cues, just like you were saying, maybe it's just been a long time and you have not been connected with those hunger cues intentionally or unintentionally. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes that's not a good way of really, um, assessing your needs mm-hmm. and you kind of have to go from, a and why it's so important to work with someone like you or me, where you're working with someone directly to help you see what you need, because those hunger cues often can fall short if we're so out of touch with them. And it's kind of, we're kind of in this reset pattern, right? Like the whole purpose, just like training our bodies for sleep, we're training our bodies back again to adjust to proper nutrition and restoring a lot of, a lot of what we've been lacking. And I think Mm -hmm. it's so important, like you were saying, at the end of the day, reproduction, us being able to reproduce life is not vital to our survival. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if something in our cycles off, maybe we're missing periods or we're no longer ovulating, that is definitely a first and foremost sign that, okay, there's some sort of external something going on that's making me, my body basically have to go into survival mode. And this Mm -hmm. is, this is something I can basically put a pause on because it's not essential to Katie yeah. or Kaylee survival. Yeah. Right. So I think that's so important to, to talk about. Um, now let like getting into the, the lack of cycle or anovulation mm-hmm. or just irregular periods. Let's talk a little bit if we can and shift gears into PCOS. I know early on you'd mentioned mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And I feel that it's something that we should absolutely kind of touch on today because it is so common, whether mm-hmm. women realize it or not, many might be struggling with it, not even have a, have a name for it, but can we talk a little bit about what PCOS is and how Mm -hmm. specifically hormones are related to it? For sure. So PCOS stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, and based on that name, you would think that that always means that there are lots of cysts in the ovaries, which in some cases there are, it's not always that way. Um, and purely an ultrasound noticing cysts on the ovaries is not enough to fully classify or diagnose somebody with PCOS. Um, and we do see that pretty often diagnosis based just on an ultrasound, but it's normal to have cysts on the ovaries. It's just size and quantity that, um, will determine whether or not that's abnormal, but really with PCOS, it's a constellation of some hormonal shifts that either delay or make ovulation just really sporadic. Um, and it's usually overproduction of androgens. So that would be DHEA and testosterone, um, overproduction of that in females messes with that brain ovary communication, and then ovulation doesn't happen consistently or predictably. Um, so that's one of the hallmark symptoms of PCOS is irregular cycles or really, really long cycles, like 40 to 60 plus days. Um, and because of that overproduction of androgens, we get a whole other fun cluster of symptoms like acne, facial hair growth scalp hair loss. Um, there can be weight loss resistance in that because insulin resistance and PCOS have a lot of overlap. Um, those are the classic PCOS symptoms that we see over here. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good segue into, okay. We've kind of mentioned insulin a couple of different times and with Mm -hmm. insulin being a big driver for something like PCOS, Mm -hmm. there's definitely ways we can address it from a nutrition perspective. And whether I, and honestly, I even talk about this, whether my client has PCOS or not, I think it's important for all of us to be mindful of managing our blood sugar and Mm -hmm. our insulin sensitivity, but specifically in regards to, to insulin hormone health and PCOS, maybe if someone's listening and they are dealing with PCOS and have been told they have insulin resistance, Mm -hmm. what are some things that they can incorporate into kind of calming the insulin, increasing the sensitivity, Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Mm-hmm. So we've talked about one of them and that's getting your sleep dialed in. That has a huge impact on blood sugar regulation and insulin sensitivity. And um, it's you know essentially a free intervention and not even nutrition related, which is awesome. Um, we also want to make sure that we are building meals that keep blood sugar steady throughout the day. And the way that we do that is making sure that there's carbs, proteins, and fats together. We're not just eating carbohydrates by themselves where they're liable to spike and then drop blood sugar levels. Um, we also know that if we can get 20 to 30 grams of protein in our breakfast, so within about an hour of waking, it actually keeps blood sugar more steady throughout the entire rest of the day. So we have a big focus on getting enough protein incorporating healthy fats in our meals to help kind of time release that blood sugar and then exercise too, making sure that we're getting movement. We're not spending the majority of our day like me in a seated position. We're getting up and getting some walks in and incorporating some strength training can be really helpful for restoring insulin sensitivity. Yeah. And I'm glad you touched on breakfast. I think that it's kind of in the last couple of years, even uh, so I've been a registered dietitian for five years now And the whole idea of intermittent fasting was like kind of whispered about, it was like kind of grassroots, not really widespread as much as it is today. And I won't, I I kind of take the approach of nutrition isn't necessarily a one size fits all for everyone. And so for some intermittent, intermittent fasting may work, but what I have found is that oftentimes, especially us as women having those consistent meals, the consistent sleep, the whole theme of consistency, but specifically starting your day with a meal and being very intentional about your protein has such an important impact. Like you're saying on insulin, as it pertains to the entirety of the day. Mm -hmm. And I find, you know, I have many, many a client come to me and say, well, I've never been a breakfast eater. Usually my first meals around 11 or 12. Um, but also I have an issue with like binging in the evenings and I have these crazy cravings, Mm -hmm. right. And it really does all start with breakfast Mm -hmm. and having that well-rounded carbs, protein, and fat, having an instant and, um, emphasis on adequate protein. I love, just to recap, I love that you said 20 to 30 grams. So, um, maybe let's even get some specific, what kind of breakfast, like for you personally, what do you like mm-hmm. to eat or what do you like to recommend for women trying to hit those goals? Yeah. Um, personally, I'm a big like eggs for breakfast gal. Um, I mean, I go through phases of getting sick of it, but I usually have, you know, two or three eggs, which alone would not be enough protein to hit that 20 to 30 mark, which I think is like shocking to a lot of people. Cause we know eggs are high protein, but we're really only talking six or seven grams per egg. So I always will add some other source of protein, whether that's some yogurt or cottage cheese on the side, a little bit of last night's dinner leftover mixed into the eggs, or I'll mix some kind of a protein into my coffee. Um, I have like a full on addiction to the paleo Valley's bone broth protein in my coffee, which is a bummer because it back orders all the time. And I have to go with, Oh my gosh, wait, (laughs) um, is this like a a powder or what Mm -hmm. exactly is it? Okay. Yeah. It's a powder. That's new for me. Yeah, it's good. It's good in coffee. So I do um, No, it's unflavored. Cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I just, that was, Oh yeah, no, <laughs> it's really good. I highly recommend just be warned. It'll probably be back ordered when you look for it. Cause that's been I'll like get it in April. It's fine. <laughs> the theme of the year. Um, so that's pretty typical for breakfast, but I'm big on like non breakfast breakfast too, especially when we're trying to help our clients figure out what the heck to eat. And if you either don't tolerate eggs well, or you're not crazy about them, we need to have some other options. Um, and like dinner leftovers works great. Um, you could have like non-breakfast foods for breakfast is totally fine. Um, so we'll use dinner leftovers quite often just to minimize the amount of cooking and prep work that's going on. Um, sometimes we'll make some oatmeal and really load that up with protein, whether that's like, you can add egg whites when you cook oatmeal to add it, you could add a protein powder. There's all kinds of options for sweet or savory breakfast. Absolutely. I've, I've found that in with my kids too, I have basically two toddlers, a three and a one-year-old and they love oatmeal, but it is a high carbohydrate, low Mm -hmm. protein when you just make it plain. But I found like peanut butter and collagen powder, mm-hmm. a little bit of cinnamon, a little bit of butter, and they are just happy as can be with that. So, nice. and chia seeds for some good fiber. So there's definitely ways to level up your oatmeal. If you're an oatmeal mm-hmm. person or, you know, if, even if you're on the go and you're like, breakfast never happens for me, what are you talking about? Now you're telling me to eat breakfast. Yeah. Overnight oats. <laughs> like 
we got to get creative. And I will say it's that whole, like, you have to make that decision to plan ahead, Mm -hmm. especially if you're not used to eating breakfast, but it's well worth the time for sure. Oh my gosh. Yes. That's like foundational really, I think. And bringing it back to our stress conversation, if we don't have a steady influx of food, particularly carbohydrates that are keeping blood sugar up, our fail safe is cortisol, which is our stress hormone. That's the other option to keep blood sugar up. And we have to keep blood sugar in a pretty narrow range for survival. So we've got these backup mechanisms if we're not eating consistently. And that's one of the big connections between things like intermittent fasting or just skipping breakfast because you don't like it or have time. If we're not eating something, we're now making stress hormones to make up the difference there. And if we're already stressed from a very um, overflown bucket of other things, we don't want to have that as something that we're adding into the mix too. So it's like a no brainer to just start eating breakfast, keep that blood sugar steady, and let's use glucose instead of cortisol to keep blood sugar where we want it. Yes. Oh, preach. I love this conversation. And it, and it could be even counterintuitive because there might be people listening saying, well, I'm trying to manage my weight and even potentially lose weight. And now you're telling me to add breakfast, but you're right. When we're running on those stress hormones, we're upping our insulin and we know insulin works indir- works very, very much against trying to lose weight. It actually mm-hmm. inhibits it. So managing that blood sugar and actually adding in a meal might be the answer for many. Um, and and this brings me to another question, you know, if, if we are trying to manage our insulin, we're having issues with insulin sensitivity, we're trying to keep that steady level. You talked about being sure that we're getting the carbs, protein, and fat together, but also is there like a magic window of how frequently someone should be eating? Mm -hmm. Should we be adding snacks or three meals a day enough? We usually start with every three to four hours. We're having a meal or a snack just to start. Because like you said, you know, nutrition is truly different for each person. It depends a lot on preferences and what your day looks like. Some people do really well with three bigger meals and no snacks. Whereas other people, particularly if you're just starting to eat more after under eating for a long time, can't do larger meals at a time. So snacks are going to be important. Um, But every three to four hours is what we're shooting for. And then we can play with it from there based on how you're feeling. Are you hungry by the time you get to the next meal? Are you feeling satisfied or maybe overfull from the meal size. So it takes a little bit of trial and error with each person to figure that out, but that's the rule of thumb we're looking for, at least out of the gates. Yeah. I think that's a great reminder for people too, is it does take time. So being patient and knowing that it's a process, you know, there's never this expectation of perfection, mm-hmm. but just, it is trial and error. Everyone is so unique and so different and responds differently to things. So it does take time, but it's worthwhile to start. I like that. I like your idea of let's start with three to four hours, you know, no more than that between eating something, eating carbs, protein, and fat fat paired together. Mm -hmm. And then if you're finding that you're just, it's too much, you're constantly in a state of feeling over full, then we can dial it back and adjust. But starting there is that's a great starting point. Okay. So you talk some PCOS, some insulin management, some sleep and stress, can we talk a little bit? Cause you mentioned early on, um, a stressor for hormones also can be over-exercising mm-hmm. and everyone like wants to manage their weight or lose weight or get fit, but that can be an added stress that actually is doing us a disservice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about maybe some, how exercise impacts our stress hormones and even maybe get into a little bit of adrenal fatigue? Cause I think that can play sure. a role as well. Definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, exercise is a stressor which it can be good. I mean, uh, uh, stress applied correctly with adequate rest time is how we build muscle. It's how we improve our endurance. It's how we get stronger as people. You know, our goal is not to live a zero stress life, but it's to manage the different inputs and make sure we're not overflowing that bucket. And so if we are already stressed to the max with other things going on in our life, maybe we're in a calorie deficit because we're trying to lose weight adding really stressful forms of exercise on top of that just adds insult to injury. Um, and we see this all the time. We hear I've got my nutrition dialed in. I'm busting my butt in the gym, doing all these hit workouts, six, seven days a week. And I've actually gained weight. I haven't lost it, or I'm not seeing the results I would expect, or maybe I'm like losing muscle, even though I'm lifting weights. So that's a really big tell too, that if you are putting in all this effort, but you're seeing the opposite of what you would expect to see, 
we've probably gone a little bit too far into that stress pattern where we're now not going to see benefit from that effort, which is extremely frustrating. And I've been there myself. Lots of our clients have experienced that too. So we just have to look at different modalities of exercise. And I think there's a common misconception that in order to support hormones, we like can't be exercising. And that's not it at all. I think um, it's very clear that exercise is beneficial and we need to be in motion. That's what humans are supposed to do, but we want to stick to lower stress, lower intensity forms of exercise when we're working on resolving hormone issues. So we like to have weights and walking. Um, so daily steps, um, like that 10,000 steps a day mark is a great target. And that's just to make sure we're not spending so much of our day with uninterrupted sedentary time. We're getting those big muscle groups active. We're helping to improve insulin sensitivity, and then lifting weights. So like true weightlifting with adequate rest intervals, not like circuit training where your heart rates up the entire time. We really like, because we get the hormonal benefits of strength training and metabolic benefits of strength training without taxing the nervous system. So we usually put a pause on long duration cardio and really high intensity, like interval type training when stress is high or when we're dealing with hormone issues. Um, and that's not a forever thing. There's seasons for that. And I like to be clear because I get it. Hit workouts are super fun. And I think that they can be effective. There's just a time and place. And if stress is super high, my opinion is that that's not the time or place for that. Absolutely. And I think it's hard for, for some, and, and I'm with you. I was there. I, I I'm thinking back to Katie four four or five years ago, before I got pregnant mm-hmm. with my first, my husband and I had joined a gym we were going to classes five days a week, you mm-hmm. know, 4 a.m. wake up calls to be there or 4.30 to be there by five and just running, running, running. But after doing that for seven, eight months, my body was like, all right, it's I'm kind of getting to my point. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard shift to make when you're when you're so used to doing that intense hit workout, you're lifting heavy weights, you're going, going, going to switch that to, you want me to lift three pound weights for three minutes? What are you talking, you know, like mm-hmm. how bar is so popular in, in exercises like that, but truly you're right. There is a time and place and active recovery and recovery, I would argue are equally as beneficial as that intentional workout time. So mm-hmm. you can still get the exercise and meet your wellness goals while also dialing it back often in the gym, because you're right. Like stress is stress can be good. Like we're never going to eliminate all of stress. That's, that's Mm -hmm. part of life, but overdoing it. That's when you start to see the negative impacts that are, that happen when you, when you push beyond how do our adrenals play a role in, in stress? Yeah. So the adrenals are little glands that sit on top of your kidneys. So like mid lower back, and they make our stress hormone cortisol among some other important stuff that they do. But in the context of stress, that's the big takeaway. When we experience stress, whether that's low blood sugar, intense exercise, poor sleep, or like you got into a stressful conversation with a boss or a loved one, our adrenal glands kick out cortisol as a response to that. And cortisol's job is to make sure that there's enough glucose available in the blood for you to fight off whatever battle you're in. (laughs) And you can think of it like we're literally running from a lion. If we think about like ancestrally, what the purpose of cortisol was, the stressors back then were like very life or death. Um, We have the same biological response today, but it's very rarely life or death. It's like, I get that same cortisol surge, but I'm seated on a stressful phone call as I would if I was attacked by some kind of an animal in the woods. So it's readying fuel so that you can fight or flight. You can run or handle that. Now, if we are under stress all the time, And we're constantly kicking into that. We're constantly releasing cortisol. You know, we've talked about how that can affect your cycle, how it can affect your ability to see um, body composition changes that you might be after. But we also have something called a negative feedback loop built in um, down an HPA axis. So that's brain to adrenal communication. And if our H in the HPA, which is the hypothalamus, sees tons and tons of cortisol long-term, it starts to shut down that signaling pathway as a protective mechanism for you because long-term high cortisol is detrimental and inflammatory. Now, when that happens, we end up on the opposite end of the spectrum. We went from really high cortisol to now almost no cortisol. And like with anything in life, it's a Goldilocks situation. You know, we don't want too much, but we also don't want too little cortisol. That sucks to feel that way too. And that presents like really low energy, really burnt out. Um, your drive to exercise is just not there anymore. You might have um, increased carbohydrate cravings because we're struggling to keep blood sugar up. 
Um, and if we have tons and tons of intense exercise going on, it's something that can contribute to that picture of um, burnout, or you might hear it called adrenal fatigue. Um, there's always debate about whether or not adrenal fatigue exists. And that's just because of the name. It makes it sound like the adrenal glands just got tired and <laughs> that's not what happened. It's a uh, you know, negative feedback loop with the brain. Your adrenal glands are fine. They're just not getting the signals from higher ups. Um, but that's really how that looks from an adrenal standpoint. Yeah. I mean, it's so important. And I think the, the recurring theme, I mean, it really is all rooted in managing stress, whether mm -hmm. that's your physical activity, your food intake, your sleep quality. Um, what else do we say? Okay. Actually let's touch on as we wrap up, I know mm -hmm. it's, we're getting close time to wrap up, but another stressor that I see commonly is just by the products we use, whether mm -hmm. it's like the things we cook our food in our laundry detergent, our deodorant, our fertilizer in our yard, you know, yeah. these can be stressful. So can you talk a little bit about that? I know we're, like I said, For we're sure. kind of closing in on time, but I think that's an important conversation because it affects our yeah. hormones. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. And that's part of what is so stressful about being a human in modern society is we're like pretty much attacked on all fronts by various chemicals and additives that are stressful to the body. They're either overtly toxic to the body, act as direct endocrine disruptors. So they mess with hormones directly, or it's just adding stress to an already stressed out plate. So when we think about things that are within our control, looking at the things that we use day to day, whether it's cookware, um, Tupperware, things that we're heating food in, our water bottles and our water quality, beauty products, personal care products, all of those things really add up. So if it's not something that's been on your radar and you've been dealing with some of these signs and symptoms of stress, it would be worth just taking an inventory of stuff that you're using or putting on or in your body on a day-to-day -day basis. And as things start to run out, you can replace them with cleaner options. And that's something that um, Lauren, the friend that connected Katie and I taught me. And she was like, you know, it's overwhelming to think you have to just clean up everything in your life in one day. It's expensive as well. She was like, as things run out, opt for something better each time. And over time you will have reduced that burden. And I really, really like that philosophy. Yeah. Because it's so, it's so less intimate, so much less intimidating, right? That we can all achieve that. Like my, my deodorant's not going to last forever when it right. runs out. Boom. And there's some really great resources, you know, even in the app store, right? We all have a smartphone mm -hmm. in our fingertips, one that I love to go to for those listening and you want a resource of, well, how do I know if it's clean? Everything is saying clean these days. <laughs> Doesn't necessarily mean it's safe. Some, some things that you can look for, you know, flip over on the back. If the ingredients say something like fragrance, that I would say first and foremost, that's the biggest one because we don't really know what's in a fragrance. <laughs> it's kind of like a catch-all term that companies are allowed to use and not really disclose what's actually in it. So fragrances, um, but back to the, back to apps too, that are just easy at the fingertips that you can scan with barcodes. I love the healthy living app is it's EWG, the environmental working group. It's a third-party group that tests the toxicity and rates basically the safety of your products. So that's a great place to start. Um, you know, if you're using Teflon, Teflon of course was super popular in decades past, but now we know it's got some carcinogenic effects as well as endocrine disruptors. So if we can transition out of our Teflon into things like ceramic, ceramic's a really good one, even stainless steel and uh, cast iron skillets, all of those are gonna be safer options. So there's definitely the resources out there to find safer alternatives. It just takes a little bit of extra legwork in the beginning. But like you're saying, it's not something necessarily to get intimidated by just as you need to refill. There's your opportunity to try to make that safer swap. And, um, and, and one for me personally, back to kind of our personal stories that, that had us encounter these issues that then gave us, this is a red flag thing that all women need to know about. For me, it was like my, my feminine care products. Like mm -hmm. I was just using, you know, tampons that were not organic packaged in plastic wrapping. You know, it's like double whammy. Here we go. Plastics and fertilizers yeah. right next to my reproductive parts. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, making that swap, going to a silicone, like the diva cup is super popular, organic pads and tampons, fragrance, free pads and tampons. So lots of little, little opportunities for changes. Don't get overwhelmed yeah. along the way, but that can also reduce stress on us, on our systems. Absolutely. So, and little things add up over time. 
They do. They do. What is it? The, the aggregation of marginal gains. Well, it's the yes. same thing. Same <laughs> thing. Um, okay. Well, as we're wrapping up, you know, any parting words that you want to leave someone, you know, they're like, okay, time to manage my stress. What mm-hmm. would you recommend to someone listening? And they're like, ready to, ready to start this journey where yeah. to begin. So I'd say the first thing is just to like, remember or acknowledge the fact that you have so much control over your health. I know it can often feel like there's so much that needs to be taken into consideration, but there's some really simple changes that have like a profound impact on how you feel and it's well within your control. So I would start with the sleep and nutrition that we talked about that has to be in place before anything else matters. And then my next best step from there is to just start working more minerals into your day. That makes so different with the way we deal with stress and getting our adrenal glands nourished and back online. Um, magnesium is like an easy go-to for anybody that's been dealing with stress, which we all do and all have. Um, and that's something that, you know, I very rarely am recommending something across the board to all people, but magnesium is one of the things that I do because it's something we burn when we're stressed and hard to get enough from food. So it could be supplemental, or it could be like an Epsom salt bath once or twice a week to take care of yourself. If you don't have time for a full bath, you could at least soak your feet in some Epsom salts too, a foot bath. Um, getting magnesium makes a world of difference in our resilience to stress. Oh, that's so good. I'm so glad you mentioned magnesium. I know it's like most Americans are deficient and you're right. Who doesn't want to take a magnesium bath or sit at your desk and soak your feet? How easy is that? (laughs) Okay. Well, Kaylee, this has been so fun and I think so helpful, so informative. I'm excited for people to give a listen and where can anyone that wants to find you, where can we find you? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram. It's at Kaylee RD. And my name is spelled weird. It's K-A-E-L-Y and then R-D. And then the website's the same. It's KayleeRD.com. But I do spend most of my time with educating on Instagram. And that's where you can get in touch and learn more. That's awesome. Yes, I encourage everyone listening in. Go follow Kaylee. She's a wealth of information. And it gives us info in bite-sized pieces that the average normal person can kind of take in and understand easily. So we really appreciate all you do. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Simply Functional Nutrition with Katie. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, I would appreciate a five-star rating and share with your friends. Learn more at simplyspencer.com. And be sure to follow me on Instagram at Simply Spencer.